Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Toxins, toxins, toxins. Have you ever noticed how many toxins there are? The stuff they put in our food, even though the FDA knows things such as aspartame or carcinogenic. The stink that people put on themselves and they insist on being in their shampoos and being in their cleaning agents and all these toxic chemicals and EMF and glyphosate, the real big whammies late to come to the party. Uh, Have you ever looked at this? Have you ever questioned why there's such an increase in chronic disease? Why are so many of our children getting sick? Why have autism rates risen from one out of 10,000 to one out of 38 boys in some areas? I'd written an article on this, so I know a little bit about it. Why are one out of six children, do they have a learning disability or developmental delay? Was it like that when we were younger? Why is ADHD, which was previously unheard of, so prevalent? Although I and everyone in my family had it, and you can imagine what a party that was. My theory that I've expressed previously in this show is that our immune system is so challenged by fighting off these toxins, our body can certainly handle some things, that it doesn't have enough left to fight off the COVID-D virus or any other virus. Experts have confirmed this. So let's look at this further. Today, we are honored to have Beth Lambert with us, who's an expert in this area. She's written two books on it, A Compromised Generation and brain under attack. She's an author, educator, and former health care consultant. She's monitored and documented the escalating rate of childhood chronic conditions for nearly a decade. In her first book, A Compromised Generation, it provides a thorough analysis of the origins of this modern health crisis and documents how modifications to the environment and lifestyle factors can profoundly influence in health, health incomes. Blech. Uh, got that on my mind, outcomes, including full disease reversal. She's also the co-author of Brain Under Attack, a research resource for parents and caregivers of children with PANS, PANDAS, and autoimmune encephalitis. She is the founder and executive director of Epidemic Answers, a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to reestablishing vibrant health in our children. She's also the creator and executive producer of the Documenting Hope Project, a multi-year perspective research study and media project that examines the cumulative impact of environmental stressors on health and their mitigation through personalized and system-based treatment approaches. She's a mother of three children and is passionate about raising awareness about the connection between our daily choices, human health, and planetary health. So welcome, Beth. It's so, so great to have you on here. Thank you, Susan. I'm really happy to spend some time with you. Okay, well, let's uh, get started. Let's uh, inform the audience. What are the statistics on chronic health condition in children, and how does this compare historically? Well, I think that's 
the, the most important factor is, is um, trying to put the statistics into context because, you know, we get used to the normal that is today, that is now, and, and that is that you see a lot of kids with ADHD or asthma or autism, allergies. It all seems normal because it's common, but just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal. You really have to take the long view. And if you go back to, like, the 1960s, and you look at the statistics in terms of the numbers of children that were impacted with chronic health conditions, it was really very small. I mean, it was less than 10%. And some reports even put it as low as 2% of children had a chronic health condition in 1960. So if you fast forward to today, and the most um, thorough epidemiological study that's been done puts it at over half of American kids today have some kind of chronic health condition. So what does that mean? That that includes like the allergic inflammatory conditions like asthma and allergies, but it also includes autoimmune conditions, obesity, diabetes, but it also includes um, conditions that we really didn't used to see a whole lot in the past, like autism spectrum disorder, um, ADHD, uh, and neurobehavioral and developmental conditions. So if you have more than half of American children with one kind of diagnosed chronic health condition, we know that there's even more children out there that are affected because just because um, you have a diagnosis, you're getting picked up in that statistic. But if you don't have a diagnosis, but let's say you have, you know, sensory problems or you have um, chronic constipation or you have skin rashes or other kinds of signs or symptoms of not being well, and you're not getting that diagnosis, you're not getting picked up in that statistic. So we know that the vast majority of American children have some kind of chronic health condition, and it is an explosive growth since, um, you know, just a few decades ago. So we have a real, a real epidemic on our hands. Yeah, I'd like to confirm and point out that uh, it's not that you have a disease or diabetes, such as diabetes or not. It's not that you reach your blood sugars of 126 in the morning and, oh, you've got the T-shirt, the hat, welcome to the Diabetes Club. No, it's a continuum. The Kaiser study, for example, showed that for each point your morning fasting blood sugars above 84, your risk for diabetes increases by 6%. It's a continuum. And just because you don't have the label and the T-shirt and the jacket, it doesn't mean that you're on a healthy path. Exactly. And that's, that's a really good point you make there. And I think it actually speaks volumes about human health in general. It's, you know, we have this mindset and it's really coming out of genetic determinism that we think, oh, well, if you have been diagnosed with this condition, it's always been there. You will always have it. And that's not the case. Human health is much more dynamic than that, as you just described with diabetes. Like, the, the human body is constantly interacting with this environment, and it's going to express symptoms of illness or health depending largely on those, um, those inputs. And, of course, genetics and, and what came down through hereditary lines are an com- important component. But because there are so many inputs on a day-to-day basis, your health is going to fluctuate all the time. So I think that's a really important point you make. And another point is, is in many different diseases and studies that genetics might be up to 30% of it, but it's our lifestyle choices that affects the rest. I mean, look at epigenetics where we can actually change which genes show up, which ones express and which ones shut down. So it's not that our genes determines our future. There's something in our environment that's affecting our genes and our lifestyle choices and our exposure, I believe, to toxins that is contributing to this. Absolutely, 100%. Okay. So, for example, in your book, you say autism rates increased by 6,000%. 
ADHD by 400%. I don't even think it was known when I was a kid. Asthma by 300%, allergies by 400%. And those figures are probably outdated. So what's going on? What's the total toxic load? How does this help explain this? So I I think one of the problems with examining this epidemic of chronic illness in children is that there is no one thing. What we do know for certain is that the numbers have increased across diagnostic categories. You know, whether you're talking about asthma and allergies or whether you're talking about ADHD and autism, we know there's just more children today that have these conditions, many, many more children that have these conditions. And so I think researchers have been looking for the smoking gun. What is it? Is it something we're eating? Is it that, you know, um, our ways of learning in the classroom or contributing to learning disabilities? Is it um, the toxins in the environment? What's the thing? But, and the answer to it is there is a single thing. There is no one smoking gun. There are some things that are more impactful than others. So, for instance, there's going to be certain exposures like the heavy use of antibiotics over the last 75 years has certainly impaired our gastrointestinal function and our immune function. Um, and precipitate all kinds of other problems, but it's not the only thing. So the way we need to be looking at this epidemic of chronic conditions in kids is to look at the total picture. It's kind of a perfect storm of environmental variables that really can be just described as modern living. And so for what, you know, what precipitates the symptoms of autism in one child is going to be different than what precipitates the symptoms of autism in another child. But what they have in common is that both children's immune systems um, were basically overloaded uh, at critical developmental time period. So what does it mean that their immune system was overloaded? It could be any number of things. As you mentioned, toxins, right? It could be that the toxin, the toxic burden, uh, the things that the children were exposed to in the air, water, soil, in their food, uh, in their home environment was too much. It could be the exposure to electromagnetic radiation. It could be exposure to um, light stressors, like fluorescent uh, lights in the home. All those little stressors that a child is exposed to on a day-to-day basis, they add up. And that's what we're not really giving enough consideration to. You know, we're trying to figure out the one thing. Is it mercury? Is it cadmium? Is it aluminum? It's really about adding all of the many little things, putting all of them together kind of like in one picture, and then looking at the individual child and seeing how that cumulatively affects the child over time. And I think with something like autism, or ADHD, when you have neurobehavioral or neurodevelopmental conditions, you see these kinds of um, total load uh, burdens occurring during critical developmental times. As you know, that's like why one child might develop brain symptoms, whereas another child develops, um, you know, allergy or you know, skin rashes. It's just, it's just when did that total load tip over for them? When did they experience that excessive level of stressors on their body? And and to what degree? Was that child resilient at the time? You know, like what kinds of health supports did they have? Did they have good nutrition? Were they outside in fresh air and getting sunshine on their skin? Were they moving in a natural way the way kids are supposed to? So it's really about, you know, if you want to know why are we having so many sick kids today, it's really almost a formulaic equation where you have the number of health stressors on an individual child and what kind of health supports that child has. And the, the child that has too many stressors and not enough health support is going to have worse outcomes. And if the child that has too many stressors and not enough support during critical developmental times, like think about a baby when they're six months old or nine months old or 18 months old when they're learning to walk and talk and interact with, with you know, the family members. 
when their burden is too great at those times, that's when you get the neurobehavioral and neurodevelopmental symptoms emerging. And this is really just all too common for our kids today in the modern world. The stressors are just too many. I'd like to affirm, confirm some of those concepts. Uh, my article on autism in Frontiers of Psychiatry, my conclusion was that autism is the final common pathway of everything that goes wrong. So each kid is different. Catherine Reed, who was on this program, described how she reversed all of her child's symptoms by eliminating glutamate. Someone else uh, did it by eliminate, eliminating gluten. Other people, when the mother has antibodies against the child's brain, it's much more complicated. So each child is different. But it seems that there's a lot of research saying that the gut is heavily involved in a lot of these things. Can you describe the role of the gut? You did it beautifully in your book. Yeah, so I think that, you know, this was um, some place where scientists beginning, began putting their attention about 20 years ago, and it's just now beginning to trickle into sort of the, the mainstream narrative, which is that the microbiome, all of the microbes in and around your body, especially in your gastrointestinal tract, are critically important for human health and critically important for, the, you know, the development of our children and how their brains develop. Um, so one of the things that you see commonly in children who have autism or ADHD or autoimmune diseases, any of these sort of these chronic inflammatory conditions, you can tell that their microbiome is out of balance. You know, um, a human microbiome is not unlike the ecology in a pond, right, where you need to have diversity of microbes and species to have a rich and healthy pond. Well, in, um, you take that pond and you throw bleach into that pond or some other kind of toxin that kills the microbes or the, the species in that pond, you're going to get, you know, a complete wipeout of the, that biodiversity. And what you are going to get is something else that grows that isn't a natural part of that pond. The same concept is, can be applied to the human gut, the human microbiome. So if you think about what we've been doing in the post-industrial era, uh, the post-World War II industrial era, is that we, you know, we developed antibiotics. We have this amazing pharmaceutical industry where we have all of these um, chemicals, synthetic chemicals that, you know, maybe treat certain symptoms or, or suppress certain infections, but there's side effects to it. So antibiotics, the side effect of, you know, killing the strep infection that you might have is that it wipes out our microbiome. So it's the analogy to the bleach in the pond. So if you take that antibiotic and you wipe out the microbes in your gut, the diversity in your gut is gone. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have opportunistic bacteria or yeast or other kinds of microorganisms that fill that gap. And so to be healthy and robust and to have an immune system that functions properly, you really need to have a robust, diverse um, microbiome. So if you go and look at any of these kids with um, a chronic inflammatory condition and you test their stool, you do an analysis of what's in their gut in terms of microbes, they have much less diversity in there. And so, so why is that important? The microbes in our gut are important not only for helping us digest and assimilate nutrients, you know, pull those nutrients out that we need for our cells to function, but the microbes also regulate our immune system. They help turn the immune system on, so to fight invaders. They turn the immune system off to help regulate, so, you know, prevent autoimmunity. They also help us detoxify, and there's tons of medical literature out there showing how the microbes in our gut in a healthy, robust, diverse gut actually help us eliminate toxins that we're exposed to. So just imagine that for a minute, that we have 
an entire generation of kids, and really we're talking about a multi-generational phenomenon now, but we have an entire generation of kids who've been carpet bombed with antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, so like the reflux medications, hormone and steroid medications. Um, these all disrupt the gut flora, the microbes in the gut. So if you disrupt the gut flora, you have less diversity in the gut, you're going to have immune dysregulation, you're going to have asthma, you're going to have allergies, you're going to have sensitivities to the foods you're eating, you're going to develop inflammation in your body, you're going to develop autoimmune diseases. And as you just mentioned, many children on the autism spectrum have been found to have autoantibodies to brain tissue. These kinds of autoimmune conditions can develop when you don't have a healthy and robust gastrointestinal microbiome. It's really, um, you know, something that's been evolving over decades, but we're just trying to, uh, we're just trying to, we're just starting to get to the point in, in, you know, in the medical community where people are paying attention to how important the microbiome is to our health and, and to our children's growth and development. Uh, it's very um, overwhelming to think about what we've done without really even being aware of it. Yeah, and when I was writing part of the article in 2013, I pushed to have the gut in there and it kept getting rejected. But after shaming them, I finally got my way. But I'd like to add a couple of points. I mean, this was a famous uh, medical center and they didn't want me to put the gut in there. And I felt in 2013, ah, what a contribution I made. I got it in the literature. But anyway, I'd like to add some points here, like the PPIs and the antacids. Uh, uh, Half of the people with GERD or reflux disorder apparently have too little stomach acid. And our stomach acid is so important. We need it to digest the proteins. Uh, We need it to close the upper sphincters so all this acid doesn't come out. We needed to get the pancreatic enzymes going. We needed to get the bile going. So taking these antacids, and if you read the insert, pharmaceutical insert on any of these, you're only supposed to take them for a short period of time. But And there are studies that taking such drugs can le- increase your risk for dementia by 40%. That, that, I think, was in an interview I did with Permuter. But anyway, so we, you know, handing out these antacids, uh, it means we have undigested proteins. Now, another thing that's very important is the concept of dysbiosis, which is leaky gut. And all the things that Beth referred to makes our gut leaky. Well, why is that important? Well, uh, any undigested protein and gluten is very hard to digest, so it's one of them, gets into our blood system. Then we build an autoimmune response to it. And then through molecular mimicry, we get autoimmune reaction to our body. That just means the antibodies get confused and go after tissues that seem similar genetically. So some people postulate that a leaky gut, which comes from everything, you know, poor microbiome, etc., is the cause of our autoimmune diseases such as asthma and stuff. So the gut is, and also the gut communicates integrally with the brain. Got a leaky gut barrier, got a leaky blood-brain barrier, and that means all the creepy crawlies come go into your brain where you certainly don't want them. You want to comment further on dysbiosis or leaky gut? Well, one of the things you just mentioned, Susan, about um, leaky gut and leaky brain is that we are seeing uh, a huge epidemic that's new in our kids. And it's in adults, too, but it's really happening in scary and acute ways in our kids. And that's the epidemic of PANS and PANDAS, which are acronyms for basically autoimmune diseases that precipitate um, behavioral issues, um, psychiatric symptoms, to use kind of an old term, 
Um, so you have kids who are, you know, seemingly neurotypical, developing normally, you know, elementary age kids, and then all of a sudden their parents report that they like like a switch flipped and they became crazy for lack of for lack of a better word. I mean, this is literally how their the parents are describing what's happening to their kids. But it is um, the acute onset of, of neuropsychiatric symptoms, OCD and anxiety and new tics and things like that. But it's, the pathophysiology of it is what you just described, where you have the um, leaky gut, the opening of the blood-brain barrier, and as you said, the creepy collies that get into the brain. And you have, you're basically having your immune system trying to deal with, um, you know, infections and toxins in the in the body and the brain, and so it's essentially resulting in this autoimmune attack in the brain. Um, and it is a, a growing epidemic. It's uh, affecting about two-thirds of kids on the autism spectrum at least. I mean, that's the statistics, but it could be even much higher than that because, uh, as you know, autism is autoimmune, uh, and, and very much of its symptomology comes out of that autoimmune com- component. So this is something that I think people are starting to wake up to because you know, people pay attention when, they're, when their kids are affected, and there's plenty of people out there who are like, well, I don't, you know, I don't have a child with autism, so, you know, it, it doesn't really apply to me. But you're seeing more and more neurotypical kids develop these strange, out-of-the-blue, sudden-onset symptoms like OCD and anxiety that can be crippling. Um, so it's interesting to see this, uh, this new epidemic evolve right in front of our eyes. Yeah, in your book, Brain Under Attack, you describe these symptoms in detail. You say, for example, it's like a sudden, crazy, new, disturbing behavior that comes out of nowhere. And other symptoms are like obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, separation anxiety, depression, opposition, you know, defiant disorder, tics, uh, temper tantrums, emotional liability, rage, behavioral regression, baby talking. Uh, problems with sensory and sleep and bed writing and food restriction, hyperactivity, inability to concentrate, hallucinations, head banging, aggression, refusal to go to school, refusal to be left alone. I mean, the, the prognosis for the kids that have this problem seems very poor. Yeah, it doesn't actually, you know, since we started researching for that book, we, we met a lot of families whose first stop when this happened to them was a psych ward. You know, they were at like Yale New Haven in Connecticut where many of the doctors were kind of shrugging their shoulders like, we don't know what this is. Like your kid just has acute psychosis. Um, and that happens all too often. And and what the reason why that's a challenge, and you know this better than anyone, Susan, is that, you know, the, the field of psychiatry is not um, – you know, looking at the whole system to see what might be, you know, out of whack or imbalanced in the whole body. And the brain is connected to the body. And, and these brain symptoms, right, these, these things that we think are brain symptoms um, that we think belong to the psychiatrist are actually whole body symptoms. And so the kids that are really getting help are the ones who start working with integrative physicians that say, okay, I see these, these behaviors. I see these psychiatric symptoms, and, and I also see that there's a, there's a massive inflammatory cascade going on in this child's body. I see gut dysbiosis. I see leaky gut. I see leaky brain. I see toxic overload. And, and then when families start working with these, these practitioners who understand the systems biology piece, the whole body approach, they start um, unraveling the problems for these kids and helping, re, you know, reduce the total load and start helping that child heal. And, the, and kids come back from this condition. You know, the prognosis doesn't have to be bad. There's kids that recover from these conditions all the time, but it requires a whole body, holistic 
approach to healing. Well, it's interesting. In looking at uh, gut dysbiosis, you go through many things in your book and like prenatal uh, things that affect the kids' guts or the mother's diet, drugs, toxins, lifestyle, various uh, viruses. Postnatal natal is the food they're fed, sugar, processed food, nutrient deficiency, genetically modified. Other things you commented that it, uh, cause the gut to be so poorly functioning, antibiotics, steroids, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory disease drugs such as ibuprofen, uh, uh, GERD medications, um, etc. So, uh, you know, so all these things are interrelated because I know you described your perfect storm as dealing with diet, gut bacteria, like the sedentary lifestyle, environmental toxins, and forms of immunization. So do you wish to comment further on this? Because it just seems to be one symphony interacting all together in a bad way. Yeah. Symphony is such a beautiful word for it because it's really what it is. And again, it's not one thing. It's, it's, it's really multifactorial. It's cumulative. And the other thing that's really interesting about this epidemic and all the things you just went through, all the things you just listed that contribute to gut dysbiosis, immune dysregulation, and precipitate those symptoms, all of them are normal. They're Americanly, or I shouldn't just say American, but they're American and kind of Western world. They're cultural norms. So the foods that we eat, the processed foods that we eat, are cultural norms. It is normal for women to take birth control pills for 20-odd years. And birth control pills, are, as an example, dis, uh, they cause gut dysbiosis. They're, they're in the category of, of hormone and steroid medications, just like asthma medications. They actually can cause an imbalance in your gut bacteria. But everyone takes them. 80% of women at some point in America have taken um, uh, oral contraceptives, birth control pills. Um, another example is the PPIs, like you mentioned, the H2 antagonists like Zantac, which was just pulled off the market for, for being linked to cancer. But um, so many people, that's one of the fastest growing classes of pharmaceutical medications in America. So, so many people have taken reflux medications. If you've ever taken reflux medications, you're a normal American, but you're also contributing to gut dysbiosis which is going to have its downstream effect, not only for your health, but for the health of your children, you know, especially if you're a woman. So my point is just to say that these are things we do as Americans. Like, it's not like, you know, we're doing some kind of weird or crazy behavior. We're just living how we know how to live. We're living within our cultural norm. And unfortunately, our cultural norm, which really kind of grew up in the, the post-World War II era, it's toxic. It's, it's just not a healthy way of living. And if you put that into context, you know, we are living so differently today than our ancestors did. So the, the, our, you know, evolutionary biology is a complete mismatch for the way that Americans are living today. Our biology needs us to move. Our biology needs us to get sunlight on our skin. Our biology needs us to drink clean water and, have, and breathe fresh, uh, clean air and eat nutrient-dense foods. None of that are we doing in modern American lives where we're sitting our butts all day on computers and watching Netflix and, you know, maybe we work out in a gym, but if we work on a gym, it's on a treadmill. That's not a natural movement. You know, you get the picture. So it's really a cultural phenomenon, and it's, it's, it's really the modern living sickness epidemic that we're dealing with here. Speaking of modern cultural phenomenon, let's talk about the pills we take for headaches. Oh, you mean like NSAIDs and Tylenol? Tylenol, I mean, absolutely. 
So Tylenol, it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting to me to, to see how, despite the fact that there's tons of medical literature out there showing that Tylenol is dangerous, it depletes glutathione, which is an important antioxidant in your body that you need. Um, and there's kind, you know, there's this consensus emerging around Tylenol is no longer a safe pain medication. Um, there, it's still, it's still the number one recommendation that pediatricians are giving to parents. It is still what most physicians who learned in medical school that it was safest drug to give for pain. It's still being, told, you know, handed out like it's the number one thing to do. So that is very, I think, typical. Is that you know what you learn in medical school. Um, you know, it, science has evolved since then, and, and it's hard for physicians to stay up on these things. It really is. I mean, you have, you're a physician, you have a busy practice, you're a business person, you're managing a business, and you're trying to care for your patients, and you can't necessarily stay up on everything. But that's in the perfect example of, like, there's so many medications out there that get through FDA approval. We think we've studied them rigorously, and lo and behold, it comes out in the population that it's actually doing damage. And Tylenol is a perfect example of that. NSAIDs are in that same category, too. NSAIDs can contribute to leaky gut as well, and they can be toxic to the liver if taken uh, too frequently. So there are these – we have to be, as consumers, I think, very aware um, and cautious that just because something went through FDA approval doesn't mean it's safe. It doesn't necessarily mean it's okay for you to use. you got to do your own research. you got to do your own homework and stay up on top of the science, and it is coming out so fast and furiously that it really would benefit every consumer to just do a little bit of their own research before they start adding something into their, you know, daily routine or adding something in to manage their symptoms. Let me add a couple of footnotes to that. The FTA, the FDA, when they approved aspartame, they knew it was a pre- uh, carcinogen, and since it's been shown to be a neurotoxin, um, that it was pushed through by a White House, former White House official, because he got paid to push it through, and it was approved by the FDA. It's in our, in the hospital I worked in, and and last spring, it was in all the the beverages except the water, which is in plastic bottles, so God knows what else. Adding on Tylenol, Mm -hmm. I think some research shows that the adverse reactions that some kids have to vaccine uh, is heightened by taking Tylenol as it depletes the glutathione stores. Also, the NSAIDs, it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug such as ibuprofen, you know, some people believe, like the naturopaths, that part of our healing is you need the temperature to get up because that kills some of the virus or bacteria or whatever. And if you're suppressing that fever, you're interfering with the healing process. And also, I think in your book, you commented that these medications make biofilms, um, yeast cells, uh, that really make it difficult to have our healing process continue. And as I say, I think in my interview of Permuter, the the and anti-inflammatory drugs uh, actually that long-term studies showed increased your risk for dementia. So it seems like we used to take these as candy, but every medication has long-term effects that we haven't thought about. Right. And I think there's a, there's a way we can kind of, there's a filter or lens through which we can look at these, these kinds of decisions that we have to make as a consumer every day, because, you know, I didn't go to medical school. There are, you know, the vast majority of people that are out there making these over-the-counter, you know, um, medication decisions didn't go to medical school. So how do you know whether something is going to have the long-term side effects or how do you know whether to take something safely or not? And I think that, that that lens that we need to see is, like, how close to nature is this? You know, 
the the NSAIDs and the and the Tylenols and the proton pump inhibitors and these are all synthetic. They're patent medicines. In order for something to be patent, it needs to be chemically altered. It needs to be synthetic. It needs to be original and new to nature. And I, I think. Um, you know, I think it was uh, Dr. Jeff uh, Bland who sort of used that term, like, we need to be wary of things that are new to nature that um, we take into our bodies, because maybe we haven't done enough research to see what that synthetic or new to nature thing does. I mean, this is true with toxins, right? How many thousands and thousands of toxins are currently on the market where we have no idea what they actually do in the body or what harm they might be doing to the body? So the lens that we, we, which we need to use as consumers is, is this natural? Has the human body been exposed to this for millennia, and is, has it been okay? Or is this synthetic, and is it new to nature? And if it's synthetic, like all pharmaceuticals are, proceed with caution, knowing that the human body ha- hasn't had millennia to adapt or evolve with this particular compound. And so, therefore, there may be a problem with it. It's just, it's just being really careful and, and scrutinizing all those things that you come into contact with on a daily basis. Choose natural and time-honored and, you know, use the wisdom of our ancestors to try and help you navigate those decisions. Now, in your book, you uh, refer to the effects of immunizations. Would you like to comment on that? Because that's something that might catch some people by surprise. Well, so I think with that, it's part of the perfect storm, meaning, you know, there are plenty of... um, of families that I've listened to over the last 10 years have been, you know, following this epidemic for more than a decade. And there are many stories of families who reported that their child was fine um, until their nine-month uh, immunizations or their 12-month or their 18-month, and then the child lost their language or they started stimming behaviors or, you know, it precipitated health problems in their child. And it's a story you hear again and again, and it's often dismissed by pediatricians. Um, you know, because there is this trust and belief that the vaccines have been thoroughly studied. Um, and the, the, the truth of the matter is, is they've never been studied against placebo, which is, you know, sort of the standard of how you study something synthetic and new to nature as far as medicines are concerned. And they've never been studied in combination. So um, could these reports from these parents um, be true? Yes. And, and could there be, you know, could there be some children that are more vulnerable to their effects? than others? Of course. And here's an example. There are some children who, um, you know, go into the pediatrician's office and it's the winter time and they've had a strep infection and they've been on antibiotics. Um, And what happens when you've been on antibiotics? You deplete your microbiome. You destroy your ability uh, for your immune system to function optimally. So if you get an infection, whether it's through a vaccine or whether it's a natural infection after that, your body's going to have a harder time. So could it be that some of these parents' reports where they had, um, you know, reported that their child developed these symptoms after a vaccine, could that be because of this child's total load being too great? Sure. And and, and a lot of times people say, well, you know, if the vaccines cause um, autism or they cause autoimmune diseases or they cause the, all these problems, how come all, all children don't have these problems? How come it's only some? And the reason why is, or the theory goes, that some children just have a greater total load and their immune system is compromised when they get these uh, the, the vaccines or the immunizations. So it's not there's no one size fits all medicine that anybody should ever be taking, and that includes vaccines. So it's just a precautionary principle to look at each child as an individual and say, 
you know, what is this child's immune system like? What is their, what is their health? What does their resiliency look like? Can they tolerate this medicine? And that goes for all medicines. You know, not just, you know, and, um, and immunizations of vaccines are a, are a medicine, just like, you know, anything else. Um, they've been, you know, they've been made in a lab. So they should be um, used with caution. And I think that um, it's totally rational and reasonable to, to, to take that approach, especially with our children who are so vulnerable and who are dealing with a greater total load than any generation previously. There's, there, there just have, so many more um, toxins and stressors on a daily basis to deal with that we need to take extra caution in terms of limiting their immune exposures and, and their stressors on their immune system. The experts will agree with you. For example, Ari Vajani, uh, whom I have interviewed, says that the kids who really need the vaccines are the ones most vulnerable, and the kids that really don't need them, they don't have any many negative effects. Effects. But you mention in your book that in Canada, children who delayed their first DPT vaccination by two months have. Uh, only half the chance of getting asthma, and if they delayed all three shots, it was even lower. Then there's another study that vaccinated boys had 155% more neurological disorder, 224% more ADHD, and uh, increased autism rates. There was a study in Guinea-Bissau where half of the uh, children got vaccinated and half didn't, and the ones that did died five times as much. So um, there are some questions to be raised. Do we need 72 vaccines by the time a child is 18? I don't know. But this one uh, size fits all of wanting to vaccinate us all. And, you know, it's just something doesn't feel right. Well, the other thing is, too, it's an old technology. Right. I mean, so our, our knowledge has advanced so much past that in terms of our understanding of the immune system. So think about when vaccines were developed, there was zero, zero research into the microbiome. And, you know, there was little understanding of how our microbial world influences our immune responses. And, and, and not only that, but think about nutrition. There was such so little that was known about nutrition um, when this technology was developed and how nutrition either weakens or enhances your immune response. So we have this sort of um, cultural fear, you know, it goes back to the old Pasteur versus Beauchamp kind of um, dialogue about is it the microbe we should be afraid of um, or is, should we be focusing on the terrain or the, the health and resilience of the body that interacts with the microbe? And, and the argument goes that if, you're, if you have a healthy terrain, if you, your body is robust and, and well-nourished and resilient, you are, and you are not to fear the microbes. The microbes are less likely to have an impact on you. The microbes become a problem when you're in a weakened state, when your immune system is not robust, when you haven't been well-nourished, when you're not healthy. So that's a dialogue that we really need to have today is starting, you know, starting to look at immune Protecting our children from infectious disease is not about, there's not like this one modality. We can't just use this antiquated technology to protect our kids from infectious diseases. We need to use the science that's available today on the microbiome and nutrition and about how um, there are so many ways to bolster our immune function that we didn't know about just a few decades ago. So it's time for us to really, you know, progress our conversation about how to protect children's health. In, in the in the infectious disease realm, 
Um, and we, we've just gotten complacent in using this old technology when there's such a better, safer um, way that we could do it that would also just build their, their health, vibrant health anyway. You know, if we were sort of building up their nutrition, that they're going to have enormous benefits, not just in terms of protecting from infectious diseases. So we really need to shift the dialogue to resiliency and building up the strength um, of our children's terrain. So your premise is it's a total load of toxins and insults. And believe me, EMF, 5G, and glyphosate are big ones in that formula. But it's your premise that total load is what explains what's happening to our children. And so can you address that and how a parent or caregiver can can determine their child's total load and what can they do to help their child thrive? Yeah. So like I said before, you know, everybody is asking the question, why are we seeing so many kids with um, these chronic health conditions today? And it's that the, the total um, picture of, of modern living that's really causing it. But, but a way to describe that or talk about that is this thing called total load theory, which was coined by a woman named Patricia Lemmer, who's been in the field of autism for over 40 years. And what total load is, is just it just means that the number of health Stressors. So, as you mentioned, glyphosate and EMS and uh, heavy metals and, and petrochemicals, those kinds of stressors, and would also would include emotional stressors, psychosocial stressors, on a child's body create this kind of total load. And at some point, you can only take so much. You know, that cumulative effect of all those stressors on one human body is going to precipitate symptoms at some point. So, you, a, a child that is exhibiting any symptoms, whether it's allergy, whether it's autoimmunity, whether it's some neurobehavioral stuff like autism, that means just by default that that child, their total load is too great. Now, there's a corollary to total load, which is that you can actually increase your child's capacity to handle a greater total load. And the way you do that is by increasing the health support that that child has. So that means good nutrition. It means sleep. It means natural sunlight, clean water, fresh air. It means natural movement. Those are ways to be able to increase your child's ability to tolerate a total body burden of toxins and, and stressors. So total load is the reason why we're seeing so many kids impacted today, but it's also a path forward because if you know your child has their total load is too great, then the answer is there, too, in that you can reduce the total load by taking as many synthetic toxic um, chemical exposures out of their environment as possible. Some things we can control, some things we can't, but you can change your laundry detergent into something more natural. You can stop using perfumes and shampoos and sprays and bug sprays and things that have toxins in them because it all contributes to the total load. You can reduce their EMF exposure by hardwiring your home instead of using Wi-Fi. You can make them make sure they don't use the, the you know, the laptops with Wi-Fi on them, again, to get the, the, re- the reduction of the EMF exposure. You can um, do so many things just to bring that total load down. And at the same time, if you're also giving them health support, improving nutrition, giving them organic whole foods, making sure they're getting as much sleep as they need. You know, for some kids, it could be 10 or 12 hours of sleep a night making sure that they're getting outside and, and that their skin is seeing the sun without sunscreen, those are ways to support their health. So it's really almost like a formula, right? You reduce the stressors, you increase the support, and you're going to see the symptoms get better. Um, and, and realizing we live in the modern world and there's a lot in our environment we can't control, 
there's also a lot we can control as parents. And I think that's really empowering to know that we can do a lot to try and protect our kids' health. Well, what are some examples of some chronic health conditions that are reversible? So uh, most people, when, they, when their child gets a diagnosis on autism, rheumatoid arthritis, OCD, Tourette, whatever it is, the doctor will tell them, typically, we don't really know what's causing this. It's largely genetic. And there's not much we can do outside of maybe some therapies, like, like let's take autism, for instance. You'll be told about OT. You'll be told about speech therapy. You'll be told about physical therapy. You'll be told uh, about ABA, applied behavioral analysis. So there's therapies you can do. But outside of that, your child's going to always have autism. So autism, like all of these conditions I've mentioned, ha- has been demonstrated to be fully reversible in many children. It's documented in the medical literature. There are cases. Um, in the way that they describe it in the medical literature is that there are children who have, quote, unquote, optimal outcomes. For instance, there was a researcher at the University of Connecticut, um, Dr. Fine, who tracked children on the autism spectrum who had achieved, quote, unquote, optimal outcomes. And she found a good percentage of the, the children in her study had actually lost their autism diagnosis. It didn't happen miraculously. It didn't happen, you know, just suddenly and without any kind of reason or rationale. It happened because the parents actually worked with their children to reduce their total load. They worked with integrative physicians who know how to identify imbalances in the body, for instance, gut dysbiosis, cellular toxicity, oxidative stress, inflammation, and address those things. Um, And when you address that total load, you address that inflammation, you bring it down, that's when you see the symptoms that we call autism go away. And this is true for Most categories of autoimmune diseases, uh, certainly allergic diseases like asthma and allergies, life-threatening food allergies can be reversed. I've been documenting that for over a decade. Um, There are, I mean, the only only condition I have not documented well, I've heard about anecdotally, but I personally have not documented, is type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition. That doesn't mean it's not reversible. I just have not documented it myself. but it really, you know, pretty much most conditions that are plaguing our kids that are a function of modern living are reversible. Um, of course, excluding, you know, the, the ones that are um, inborn errors in metabolism or genetic kinds of conditions. So what lessons can we learn from families who have helped their children return to good health? So, again, I've been documenting stories. I've been collecting stories of families who have reversed all these conditions in their kids. And if you look at, if you listen to the parents and you ask them what they did and who did they work with, there are uh, a lot of things in common. So what did these families do um, that all help their kids? They reduce the total load by working towards living in a way that's more in sync with nature. So as I mentioned before, you know, choosing for things, things that are not new to nature, not, choosing things that are not synthetic, choosing things that are, um, you know, that human beings uh, have known for millennia. That, that goes in your food. It goes in what you put in your skin. It's, um, you know, it's, it's making choices about how you exercise. It's making choices to go outside instead of stay indoors. So there's that kind of common theme that, that these families chose to do things in a more natural way. The other thing I'll say that was in common um, is that that gut healing approach is really working to kind of re-diversify 
gastrointestinal tract and trying to rebuild up gut health. I mean, inevitably, almost every family who has a child who got better worked on diet, nutrition, and improving the health of that child's gut. And the last thing I'll say that that's really important, um, you know, in terms of the families that have done well, the lessons we can be, that can be learned, is there is no protocol. There's no one-size-fits-all. Every child is bioindividual. So when they developed autism, for instance, they had 75 independent variables that precipitated that syndrome in that particular child, which are totally different from the 120 variables that contributed to their neighbor's child developing autism. So each child needs to be treated as an individual. They need to be, you know, their individual body needs to be assessed for imbalances. You need to look at that child's physiology and, and look at what is out of whack with that child and address that particular child's needs. And one of the things I see happening often on, you know, a lot of these uh, social media, Facebook-type groups is the parents are looking for the thing, you know, the supplement that's going to do it, that's going to get my kid back in good in shape, or this one particular therapy. You know, like there's, a lot, there's been a lot of craze around the autonomic nervous system and polyvagal um, theory and, you know, this particular approach to regulating the autonomic nervous system. Can that help with healing? Yes, but it's never a one thing or one-size-fits-all therapeutic approach, it's bio-individuality. I think that's the most important thing for parents to take away is, like, look at your child as an individual. What, look at their past history. What kinds of things have they been exposed to? What kinds of experiences have they had? And how did it precipitate the, the imbalances that they have today? And start working on that um, individually for that child. Well, we have five minutes left, and I would like you to use it in any way that, you know, to make sure we get every part of your message out. You can include surprise toxins that people, mothers and kids might have no idea about, or use the last five minutes in any way you like. So I'd love to, to share some information about some of the research that my nonprofit organization is working on. Um, we, so Epidemic Answers is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded in 2010, and our objective has been to help educate parents about this new childhood epidemic, but also give them resources for healing their kids. So we have lots of, you know, healing stories and, um, you know, information, educational resources on how to get your child back to good health. But one of the, one of the most important initiatives we've been working on over the last few years is a research project called Documenting Hope. And what this research project, project is, um, we're working with principal investigator Martha Herbert, who's a pediatric neurologist and neuroscientist. Um, it is testing, is a series of research studies testing the total load hypothesis, meaning, you know, we think that this total load is how, um, you know, children develop this their chronic conditions, and we think it's how they get better by reducing the total load. So let's test it in a scientific, uh, you know, setting. So we have two studies that are part of that project. One is called the CHIRP study, and basically it is um, an inventory of modern living for our kids. So we ask parents to fill out an online survey. It's the most comprehensive online survey that's um, been created with regard to children's environmental health. And um, that study is IRB-approved and recruiting participants. And what we're already seeing in the preliminary data is pretty jaw-dropping, but it's validating our total load hypothesis. So we're asking parents what their kids are eating, what they're exposed to, um, what they do every day, and we're also asking about their health symptoms. We ask about their health history, and we're finding that the, the greater the total load a child has, the worse the health outcomes 
So we need more families to participate in that study, and, and people can learn more at documentinghope.com on, on, on participating. And then the other study we have is a study called the FLIGHT study, and that's a longitudinal study where we'll be taking a small group of children who have one of these chronic health conditions, and we are going to help them, help support them as they move along a healing journey. We're going to help them reduce their total load. We're going to help them find ways to support their health. And then we're going to track their improvement in health as they, you know, work towards an, an optimal outcome, let's, let's say. So um, that study will hopefully begin uh, later this year. Um, so I just wanted to share the information about Documenting Hope because um, we are trying to put some science behind the total load theory so people will understand that total load matters. The environment matters to children's health, and we're trying to take essentially what has, has been anecdotal or stories and move it into the realm of science so that we can, you know, firmly move forward and protect our children's health in the future by trying to reduce their total load and increase um, what we're doing to support their health. So how can people get a hold of you? What websites? How can they contact you to get this information or have their child participate? So, um, Two websites that we'll give, epidemicanswers.org is our educational resource website. And then the science uh, research website is documentinghope.com. So if someone is interested in participating in the CHIRP study, um, they can go to documentinghope.com and register there. It, it takes a couple hours to complete the survey. It's online. It's HIPAA compliant. It's private. It's secure. And all your information is de-identified. So there's, there'll be no way to identify you or your child as we're going through and, and analyzing the data. Um, and we need as many parents to participate as possible. And one thing I should say about that is when you participate, you get a free personalized health report for your child that highlights all the stressors in your child's life. So you can actually use that as a blueprint to try and help um, identify and reduce the, the stressors in your child's life to bring down their total load. And Parents also get coupons and discounts from great companies like Naturepedic and Branch Basics, which makes a non-toxic cleaning product. Um, so there's all kinds of um, benefits you get from uh, participating in the CHIRP study. So again, documentinghope.com, and you can register for the CHIRP study there. Thank you so much. That is very useful. We're coming to a close. So I want to thank you for all that very interesting information on toxins, which are crucial in challenging our immune system, which we need to fight off other diseases, viruses, whatever. So there you have it, folks. Do your research. Check out some of Beth's work and research. Uh, share this with your physicians and friends so they can be well and you can be well. And above all, be well. We got the power to change the world. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Are you looking for a great movie to watch? Tired of swiping through hundreds of different channels hoping to see something that sparks your interest? Well, I have great news to share with you. Today, everyone has either cut the cord with their cable company or are thinking about it. I cut the cord more than five years ago, and I don't miss cable one bit. 
There are now so many money-saving options to cable TV. My favorite right now is Roku. There are literally thousands of wonderful channels for every type of viewing experience you can possibly imagine. But today, I wanted to tell you about two very special channels, Indie Rights Movies and Indie Rights Free Movies. You will find both of these channels in the Movies and TV section of the Channel Store on Roku. All the movies on the Indie Rights Free Movies channel are absolutely free for you to watch. You can browse through hundreds of movies organized in interesting groups. You can scan through quickly like top-rated films from Rotten Tomatoes, monster horror, country drama, dark comedies, crime docs, films directed by women, and social issue docs. You won't find categories like these on other popular streaming channels. Speaking of social issue docs, you might watch The Big Secret. The Big Secret is the latest work by Emmy Award-winning producer Alex Voss, directed by integrative physician Susan Downs. It's all about the influence big money has on your health and well-being. If you prefer to watch movies without ads, subscribe to Indie Rights Movies, available everywhere.